Who would you send as a representative of this church to have dinner with the queen? The queen is still considered the most noble position in all of the Western world. And to dine with her, there are guidelines and rules. Do not enter the room before she does. Do not sit down before she does. Do not eat before she does. And if your arms get tired, you can't put your elbows on the table. can't put your forearms on the table, but you can rest your wrists on the table. And the rules go on and on. Yet with enough training, we might be able to find somebody in here who might become worthy enough in terms of etiquette to dine with the queen. But who is good enough to dine with Jesus? Who would be worthy of the presence of God? Has anyone kept the law in its entirety? Is anybody without sin? Is anyone unoffensive enough to enter the Father's throne room where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? Do any of us deserve to sit down across the table from or even at the feet of Jesus? Let's read God's word from Mark chapter 2 where Jesus invites the last people you would expect to feast with him. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In today's text, there are two approaches to the question of how does one come to feast with Jesus. The pharisaical self-purification through obedience to the law is one approach. The other approach is Jesus' invitation to sinners, those who are not good enough on their own and cannot hide it. The point of our passage is that Jesus came to call sinners and to feast with them. Jesus came to call sinners and to feast with them. And we'll look at it in four parts. We'll first of all look at the status quo, the hierarchy, the social hierarchy that existed in those times. And then we'll look at Jesus' insiders. And then we'll look at Jesus' mission. And then we'll look at the application. The status quo, Jesus' insiders, Jesus' mission, and then the application. So as we're looking at the status quo, what we're looking at is this social hierarchy where at the top of society you had the Pharisees, who in many ways viewed themselves as better than the others. And on the other end of the spectrum, you had the tax collectors and sinners at the very bottom. We're going to take a minute to look at each one of these groups before we jump into Jesus' mission. The Pharisees, their whole institution was defined by faithfulness to the law. They followed the purity guidelines and the moral commands to a T. They had great social power and control over the religious institution in the Jewish world, and they were separatists. 
If somebody might defile them, they would not be near them to preserve their own purity. Listen to how one rabbi describes this dedication to the law. He that occupies himself in the study of the law is deserving of the whole world. He is called friend, beloved of God, lover of God, lover of mankind, and it clothes him with humility and reverence and fits him to become righteous, saintly, upright, and faithful, and it keeps him far from sin and brings him near to virtue. And from him, men enjoy counsel and sound knowledge, understanding, and might. Now, of course, we believe that the law has very important uses. But we don't believe that the law has the power to make somebody right in the eyes of God. At least not sinful humans. You know, the Pharisees were not all bad. They believed in the authority of Scripture. They believed in the reality of prophecy and of the Messiah. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, unlike the Sadducees and more. And because of the Pharisees, God's law was preserved in the lives of the Jewish people. But there are problems. Some Pharisees believed that their good works earned them superior standing before men and before God. Some believed that intellectual and physical submission to the law would lead to real righteousness by the law. But we need to point out, Jesus actually never condemns them for their holiness, for their purity. He only ever condemns them for their hypocrisy. Their hearts weren't as devoted to their God as their actions were to their rules. And that is what Jesus calls out. And that is in the background of our passage today. Now let's look at the other end. You have tax collectors and sinners. A tax collector was someone who worked not only with Gentiles, which was bad enough, but worked for Gentiles and gathered money for the Roman emperor. They were probably toll collectors, so they were, they were placed at bridges, they were placed on state roads or canals, or they were tax farmers who collected taxes from farms in the region. The emperor needed a certain amount of money from each tax collector, but the tax collectors were not given a specific amount to collect, and any excess that they gathered above what the emperor needed, they got to keep. It was their wage. And that, of course, sets the stage for lots of corruption. And so tax collectors were viewed as traitors. They were viewed as selfish. One Jewish source put tax collectors in the same phrase as murderers and thieves. They're the outcasts. And then there are sinners. Sinners are not just everyday Jews who disregarded purity laws, although some considered them to be sinners, those who kept the law more strictly. But this sinners, this title sinners, refers to those who were reputable sinners. We're talking about gamblers, thieves, murderers, prostitutes, and more. There's the status quo. There's the hierarchy between those who had their acts together in society and those who didn't. Those who followed God's law to a T and those who outright broke it. So if Jesus is going to sit down for a meal, who do we expect him to sit with? Of course, we are shocked by who Jesus sits with as the Pharisees were shocked to see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. So let's look at Jesus' insiders. Let's look at who he's eating with. 
There are two stories within our passage today. There's verses 13 and 14 where Jesus calls Levi. And much like uh, as he's advancing the kingdom in prior chapters, Jesus again is teaching in verse 13. When he's finished teaching, he goes and he finds in a tax booth this man named Levi, also known as Matthew. And he calls Levi to follow him. He says, follow me, just like he said to Simon and Andrew, James and John. A tax collector, really. To be a disciple of this teacher of the law. This one in particular was grievous because Levi, by his very name, was most likely from the lineage of Levi. And the Levites are supposed to be the priests. This man should have been dedicated to temple worship, but instead has turned his back on that and is now loyal to the Gentile government, to the enemy. He's a traitor of a great degree. He would not be worthy to dine with a teacher of the law by the Pharisees' standards. But Jesus says, follow me, and he did. He rose and he followed. Then you fast forward a little while and we get to verse 15. Here we see Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners. So Levi is now one of Jesus' insiders and now we see these tax collectors and sinners getting access to this Jesus. There's a cultural significance of dining with somebody. It's a sign of acceptance and of approval. Jesus was definitely tainting his social reputation by associating with these people. Because it was assumed, look at the way the Pharisees ask in verse 16, it's assumed that it's wrong to eat with such people. And it's not just a social problem, it's also a ritual problem, because the tax collectors are not likely eating the food that they're supposed to eat according to the Old Testament law. Tax collectors also were defiled because of their interactions with Gentiles. So the question of ritual purity is on the table with Jesus eating in such a place with such kind of food. They're worried, the Pharisees are worried mostly with why, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The issue of food and purity is a problem here. But also on the table is the question of Jesus's morality. Is he approving of the lifestyle of the gluttonous, the drunkards? the traitors and other sinners? Is he even partaking of such things? Does this make him a sinner? Well, we've seen a couple stories recently that address these very issues. Two stories ago, Jesus cleansed a leper. The leprosy that was supposed to be transferred to Jesus was not transferred. Jesus was not made unclean in that moment. Instead, he made clean the uncleanness. And last week, we saw Jesus forgiving the sin of a paralytic. Jesus coming in contact with sin, he in that moment declared the sin forgiven. So if the question of Jesus' purity and his morality and his sinfulness are up for debate here, we have to remember Jesus is exactly where he ought to be. He is the one who's supposed to be interacting with sinners and with the impure. He is the one who can cleanse impurity. He's the one who can forgive sins. He is the physician who can heal the sick. After all, these are the ones he came to call. 
And in this we see the unconditional love of our God. Jesus doesn't move toward the impure and the sinful because of any merit on their behalf. He doesn't move toward them because of their righteousness, but because of his mission and because of his love for them. What the Pharisees apparently had forgotten was that Israel was chosen to be God's covenant people, not because they were great, but because they were the opposite, because of God's love. It's not because of any merit on their half that God chose them in Deuteronomy 7. And in Isaiah 19, God says something that Israel may not have liked too much. Listen to what God says of Israel's outright enemies. God says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. How are these enemies who enslaved the people and who overtook Israel, how are they God's people? It's not any merit on their part. And Paul reminds us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son in Romans 5. So Jesus is dining with the least expected. And there is a theological significance to this meal that he is having. They didn't just go and grab a quick bite. The phrase here is reclining at table. This was not the most common way of eating in the Jewish community at this time. This is a a cultural adaptation from the, the Gentile world where they would recline at table and the Jewish world incorporated it as a special occasion, as a feast, as a sort of celebration. So what Jesus is doing in a very special way is reclining at table with tax collectors and sinners, which foreshadows the messianic feast that the Messiah would bring an abundance, a feast to his people and eat with them. As it was predicted in Isaiah 25, verse 6, listen to what it says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And I can't help but think of the story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. King David sought somebody from the lineage of Jonathan to come and sit at his table just to show honor to Jonathan. And so he went and he found a lame man named Mephibosheth And Mephibosheth calls himself a dead dog. He says, who am I, a dead dog, to come and feast at the king's table? It wasn't anything Mephibosheth had done that earned him the right to sit at the king's table. And so here, the king of heaven sits with undeserving tax collectors and sinners and welcomes them to the feast of the Messiah. Those are Jesus' insiders. Why does he do this? Well, he tells us in verse 17. Let's look at his mission. What is Jesus doing? Mark has told us from the beginning, he's not just a teacher of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He's not just the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. 
And he's on a mission to proclaim and advance and establish the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel of salvation. Mark has already begun to reveal for us salvation that will come through Christ's sacrifice on the cross in his own death and resurrection. Jesus says in verse 17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He has come to call sinners. Now he introduces his mission here with a proverb. A proverb that was probably well known. It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The use of this proverb almost says to the Pharisees, this is almost too obvious. How can't you see this? I am the physician who heals the sick. I am the one who forgives sins. You just saw this. I am the one who cleanses impurity. And he says, I've come to call sinners. He states his mission. What does he call sinners to? Not all of them were called to be disciples like the twelve were, or apostles. But all were called, as we saw in Jesus' preaching in Mark chapter 1, called to repentance and belief. Repent and believe. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Remember, Jesus is not calling sinners to save themselves. He's calling them to turn from their sins and to place their faith in the one who can save them. And he's not calling the tax collectors and the sinners to become like the Pharisees. We can, set up, we can all set up our own games that, with rules that we're good at following so that we look better. He's not calling them to find a new set of rules that they're better at playing so that they, like the Pharisees, can then feel good about themselves and ignore the issues of the heart. God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice in Hosea 6. And then in Joel 2, he says, rend your heart and not your garments. This is not an issue of doing better. This is an issue of the heart, of seeing one's need and coming to the Messiah, to God himself, who can forgive these sins. The whole system of Levitical sacrifices in Leviticus 4 through 7 is to take that which is defiled or sinful, to purge it so that one might enter into the presence of God. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is engaging with those who are sinful. He is the sacrifice that forgives them of sins, and he is the presence of God that dines with them. What does that make the Pharisees? They think they're the righteous. They think they're the well. They think they don't need a doctor. But the whole point is that they don't see their need. The whole point is that they are the sinners. They are the outsiders at this point. The tax collectors and the sinners are the ones who are inside. I can, I can almost picture speculation here. I can see Jesus in a nice house at Levi's house with a feast on the table. The Pharisees outside looking in saying, what are they doing? Now the Pharisees are the outsiders because they have not come to Jesus with their need. What a terrifying reality that those who are so good by the wrong standards, like the Pharisees, are the ones who are missing the feast of the Messiah. That should remind us it's not about how good we can be. How can those who look so good to us, who are so successful at keeping the law, 
be outside, it's because they're blind. They have torn their garments, not their hearts. Their worship is the show that God calls hypocritical and insincere. They worship with their lips, but their hearts are far from Jesus. They won't admit that they need him. If you look at the front of our bulletin, I don't know if you've read this before or not. There's a quote from James Montgomery Boyce. You find it at many churches. To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who are strangers and want fellowship, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to all who will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the mission of Jesus, to gather sinners like us who are in need, who are willing to admit that we have need, who are willing to say, I'm not good enough. My laws won't fix me. What does it mean that Jesus calls tax collectors and sinners? Well, it impacts everything. It changes how we view salvation. It changes how we view evangelism. It changes how we view our Christian life. It changes how we view the church. First, let me say, there is no one so sick or sinful that Jesus would turn you away. He comes to tax collectors and sinners just like you and me. And he calls us and we respond in repentance and faith as Levi did in verses 13 and 14. He died for sinners. His blood wasn't poured out to finish the good works that the pretty good people in the world have started. He died for people like us who are outright opposed to God, who live in blindness, in captivity to the world and the deeds of the flesh and who the world scoffs at. I think Paul's perspective is very helpful here. He was a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. According to the law, he was blameless. What a resume. But then once he got it, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. Can't we see that when we think we're so good, that's the moment when we realize that's our sin, our pride, our dependence on the wrong thing. Christ came to call sinners, and so he calls now. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, now is the time. He calls sinners to repent and to come to him. Hold on to the one who is good enough and who offers this salvation to sinners like you and me. To receive it by faith. Now, we don't celebrate being a bunch of sinners. We shouldn't be proud that we are sinful. We shouldn't be okay with being sinful. That's not our goal. Instead, we celebrate the one who embraces us when we are sinful and takes the sin away and conquers it. We come to the one, we celebrate the one who forgives And then we become more like him and we grow in holiness. We trust that the spirit does work and does sanctify us and does grow us. You've heard the phrase, come as you are. And you've also heard the addition on the end, come as you are, but don't stay that way. We want to grow together, not through a program of becoming self-righteous. In fact, sometimes we need to go ahead and examine our own hearts. Where have we set up this program that we hide behind that we think makes us good? Now, there's always 
a need for humility and growth this side of eternity. And when the enemy reminds you of how sinful you are, and when you remember how bad you've been, remember the comfort, the unconditional love of our Savior who draws near to sinners. As a church, this changes who we are. We're not a bunch of people who have it together. We're a group of people who are broken on our own. There is a picture painted for us in Revelation 19. On that last day, there's going to be a feast. The wedding supper of the Lamb. When Jesus Christ is wed to his bride, to us, the church. And on that day, there's going to be an abundance. Guess who's going to be there? Sinners. Anyone who placed their trust in Jesus, not the people who had it all together. There are going to be murderers, thieves, traitors, prostitutes, corrupt businessmen, drug dealers, sex offenders, backstabbers, poor people, rich people, and we could go on and we will be there. Fitting these descriptions, forgiven by Jesus Christ. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be at that feast on that day. And the Lord's Supper, which we take every week, is a foretaste of that feast. Praise Jesus that he sits with tax collectors and sinners or else he couldn't sit with people like us. And we have to realize that as we do this together as a church, it's not always easy being with sinners. We have to be patient with people. But what's even harder to swallow is that people have to be patient with us. I think back to so many times that people have been patient with me in my immaturity and my awkwardness and in my sin. People have decided to stick with me and to point me to Jesus. That's what we do together. So we have to put up with people that we don't necessarily like. John Foreman of the band Switchfoot says this in one of his songs. You turned your back on the homeless and the ones who don't fit in your plans. Quit playing religion games. How often do we turn our back on the people who don't fit in our plans? That's a game. Stop playing those games. After all, if Jesus had turned his back on the ones who don't fit in his plans, we would not be worthy. He came to us. We, Christ Presbyterian Church, cannot be a gathering of stuck-up, socially self-sufficient, better-than-they-are law studiers. That cannot be who we are. Or else we have forgotten the gospel. Instead, let us weep over the blindness that we have to our own sins. And let's pour out our hearts, not just our wallets or our actions. Let's pour out our hearts to our God. Let's see our need and not be the Pharisees that we so often tend to be. And let us engage with the least of these that we find around us, for we ourselves are the least of these. We are the chiefs of sinners. Praise God that he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Thank God that he feasts with sinners like us.